Hey, Bunty. Greetings from San Francisco. Uh, Marnin. Some of you had asked what Marnin is. Just something Bunty and I have been saying since we were kids because we had a Hindi teacher who used to say that. So, Marnin and how's stuff with you, man? Double Marnin. It is good in London. Uh, uh, yeah, all is well. I think we are kind of, obviously, unlike you, we're kind of um, uh, winding down towards the end of a rather eventful weekend. Lots of, um, saw a couple of movies, did a, some some interesting uh, range-based shooting, which I was telling you about, you know, rifle air rifle shooting, which is a really interesting experience. Uh, but no, I'm glad to be back again. I think we were talking last week. Um, we posted something up, quite a few listens. I think we were uh, we picked up in um, conversation that we are now ranked the number fourth political podcast. Though I don't think we're explicitly political. Uh, and and the, the other podcasts who, who were listed uh, in front of us were like, you know, had big media machineries behind them. So the fact that two friends chatting uh, from two parts of the world about India uh, stacks up as number four. Do you know, Rohit, the, do you remember the, 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 the bunch of guys who kind of called us out on it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess we could shout out to them later on, but I think it was a really uh, interesting uh, feed. Uh, in fact, I can also look it up from my uh, phone. I, I just felt really pleased that, you know, the fact that uh, with uh, the work that we've done over the last three years on yeah. this um it just come to pass and, 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 and it, it is at such a good um, place. But anyway, we'll talk about that later on. What's uh, yeah, I think it's blogfeedspot.com. So Feedspot okay. is the name of the, the, the enterprise, I think. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think uh, in their blog, they featured it and we are number four. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it was very heartening. Uh, and you know we were obviously like sort of thoroughly thoroughly delighted uh, yeah. to to be to be rated and and you know as always very very grateful to people who listen because we know what a precious commodity time is and it's yeah, yeah, something we yeah. take for, take for granted and please you know India explain podcast at gmail dot com uh, if we haven't responded to your emails or haven't checked with you know the multiple email accounts we have we don't always check regularly but please we we will and please do you know send in your suggestions. Um, so yeah, you know, we thought today we'll do one of those episodes, which is just a sort of state of the union, uh, reflecting on a few things. Last time, you know, we picked up, uh, we, we kind of shared an update and we mentioned this uh, Air India story. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just a sequel to it. See, in India, everything basically follows the logic of one of those ZTV serials, episode number 316. Yeah. You know, yeah. Saas Bahu fighting for like seven years. Yeah. yeah. So... We know there's this guy, Shankar Mishra. I mean, not doxing him, it's all over the place. Guy's on an Air India plane, gets drunk, urinates on an elderly lady. Air India sorts it out, but they do so in a very nasty way. They don't give her empty first class seat, force her to go back to the same seat. Guy's very abashed, pays for her um, dry cleaning. The staff doesn't do anything. They let the guy go away scot-free. He gives a fake address. Long story short, she writes to the director of, or you know, CEO of the company. It's privatized again under Tata's guys arrested, etc. Now his lawyers in court and in an extremely poorly written, a grammatically really poorly written kind of brief, the lawyers claiming that the lady urinated on herself. And what's bizarre is she claims that the lady has some kind of enlarged prostrate. And I don't think women have a prostrate. This is what doctors have pointed out. The other logic is that she was a Kathak dancer. And yeah. Kathak dancers are incontinent. 
So anyway, that's where it stands. Uh, in between, the guy's father also came and gave some excuses. So I just had a couple of questions and I've shared these twice on Twitter. So bear with me repeating myself, middle age, etc. But here's what I want to know. So the lady urinates on herself. She's urinated on herself. The guy goes to her seat, exposes himself when he's drunk. And then he pays for her dry cleaning. Like, what am I missing here? Please tell. This is, see, this doesn't need Sherlock, right? You know, the, the, the facts arranged in any order uh, show up discrepancies. Um, so even assuming for a moment that this man didn't uh, uh, do what is being implied, there, there, there are three charges, urination, indecent exposure, uh, and then there is um, also harassment, some low-grade harassment that happened after you know, in a kind of a confrontational situation. So you're absolutely right, Rohit. If this guy hasn't done anything wrong, why uh, pick up the tab on the dry cleaning? Because you know that's not a done thing. So yeah, look, I think this is this matters in the court of law. I feel bad for that um, uh, guy only because not not the guy. I feel bad for his family because what has happened. Uh, is, I mean, imagining he's got a young child who goes to school, uh, that that child's life is going to get very difficult for the next three to four years. Because, you know, in India, when your parents or somebody related to you does something odd or is in the media for the wrong reasons, uh, it just opens up a Pandora's of nastiness. And, I, and I'm just hoping that the, the man who has done uh, wrong should be punished. And, and let's, let's step back a little bit and also, I'm not trying to justify this guy, but look, you know, he clearly is in the wrong. A mistake has been made. He, he should pay the price for it judicially, whatever punishment is there. But, you know, we are not in the middle ages, right? That, you know, he should be hung, run, and quartered. His family should be pelted with tar and feather. So, you know, there has to be a sense of proportionality about this as well. That's wonderful. We should, yeah. uh, we should respect. I mean, my concern goes out to the family. Not for this guy. This guy has done it wrong and now he's trying to wiggle and I hope his wiggles get caught out and he's, he's uh, nailed for the, for the wrongdoing that he has uh, carried out. But uh, let's just be decent and civil about his family because we haven't done anything. Uh, this is a really good, this. really good point you make and maybe at some point in a future episode we can circle back to this notion of public humiliation in India because I think about this sometime, you know, when, you know, you had a classmate who didn't do well in class, the person was shamed always, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how is it anyone's damn business what some kid gets, right? Everyone asking, yeah, you know, yeah. people get labeled and then what happens <clears throat> is it destroys their confidence. And so in many ways, you know, it's a very brutal society and it's part of the hypocrisy of what are called the middle classes, what are actually professional white collar classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, the other thing is this culture of public humiliation also cuts across different social sectors, right? Your child has a marriage outside the faith or back then a love marriage. All these things become kind of forms of stigma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, social media has created its own culture of shaming. So you think about, even with the changes that have taken place in India to the extent that we continue to be that kind of shaming public culture, combine that with social media and you, you get something very toxic. And I think the point is right, that once he's paid his debt to society, he gets to move on also. Yeah. Um, so let's move, you know, uh, there's some other things, I mean, there's always a lot of things to talk about, but uh, in the interest of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say balance necessarily, but just, you know, myriad of things, the sort of justified stereotype about India. You sent me a very delightful uh, link to an article that 
Calcutta or Kolkata is the best food city in India. Uh, ah, this was this uh, some Times of India guy. They, they just ran a thing. Uh, yeah, I, I think in this some one of these kind of travel world travel like either CNN or yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Forget the ex exact. They've listed cities which you should go to for food. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Calcutta's figure. So I sent that article. And the, the other thing that's happened is over the last few uh, years, particularly in the COVID lockdown, when I couldn't go and travel to India. Uh, I've been watching blogs, vlogs, video blogs, right? Not blog, of different people. And food blogging is a genre that has emerged quite a lot mm -hmm. in Calcutta, also in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, there's a prolonged discussion about, you know, Sev Puri, Vada Puri. In Calcutta, you know, where the egg roll is better, where the fish fry is better, uh, that happens. So uh, I read that. I send that to you and because I know you spent part of your childhood in Calcutta. Just that, you know, as a city, it is kind of a bit of a sinkhole. But uh, there are so many aspects of it which are unlike any other. Now, you know, people like Veer Sanghvi have taken opportunity to kind of romanticize needlessly from the sidelines. You know, he's written like this gallivanting thing about pujas, which does the social media rounds every time puja comes around. That, you know, mm. our Bengal is special, which is kind of a bit BSE, you know, because it's a place without industry and future. Mm -hmm. in perpetual opposition to what's happening in the center. Uh, but the food is undeniable. And I think that's one of those things which makes it remarkable. And I thought I'd, I'd share that. I'm very interested what the other listeners on the on the podcast think about that city. I mean, I also, I should share like, you know, one of my research interests is also food and communication and media. I've written a little bit on that. And I love, I love reading graphic novels on food. There's a couple of fantastic ones. Maybe in another episode, I'll share some of that. We 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 we'll do a literature film kind of you know series also yeah absolutely I mean one thing I'll also say about Calcutta you know a friend of mine many years ago had said that you can never be objective about the pop songs you hear in your childhood right like if you heard that same song now you would like boss it's completely cheesy right but because it's so sort of interwoven with memories so it's the same Calcutta has that same you know place in my heart I mean I'm probably romanticizing it I haven't been there in you know two decades now. Uh, though I would, I, I would really love the opportunity to make uh, another trip. Yes, the food was fantastic. And growing up, you know, as I mean, I've known you what now? Um, long time. You know, <laughs> long time. 30, 37, 38 years, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we, during the pujas, we would have, you know, <clears> those egg roll stalls. We would have, you know, egg rolls. We had, what was that famous place? Biryani place, Shiraz? I went back uh, recently. I was in Calcutta about um, December time, attending a friend's wedding. Me, my sister, and my mother went to Shiraz and tried it. And obviously, there's now a family setup, an air conditioned yeah. section, etc. The biryani is really, really cool. I, I, I think, and um, yeah, the, the way they serve it with the egg, the potato, and the piece of meat, and everything that that it works as magic, right? Oh, I uh, still remember that meal. Uh, you know, we and we were, you know, we were kids. This is. The India of uh, the 80s. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, we had a biryani and a half each, and we had thumbs up and we had firni. Yes, and, yes, yes. You know, those three ingredients. I mean, it's one of those moments in life where the food was just magical, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, 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 you know, so let me ask you like, I know, you know, and, and of course, I should, there's another quick point I want to make here, which is that Bengali hospitality is exquisite. Uh, and I think now there are some Bengali restaurants, there is a culture of Bengali restaurants, but in part, I think that, you know, because perhaps because it's a, in many ways, much more complex cuisine than 
at least some aspects of North Indian cuisine or all cuisines are complex, right? But you can, you can, you know, you can make dosas to scale is what I'm saying. So I remember the exact moment in Delhi when the dosa kind of hit North India, which was, there was a restaurant called Sona Rupa. And, you know, I remember my grandparents when they would come visit us, we, I was born in Chennai, then Madras. They like, you know, discovered dosas, idlis, and they like completely tripped on it. But Bengali cuisine, perhaps because of its complexity or, you know, just the nature of it or the multiple courses and all is not something that was, you know, other than something like rolls was, was, you know, able to kind of take off like, you know, butter chicken and so on. Now I believe Calcutta has those as well. So it does, it does. does. Uh, So great point. Uh, My only summary on that is like the Bengali mindset, which is incredibly nuanced and complicated. So is the food. (laughs) <laughs> I think uh, if you ask a person in Kerala how they fry their fish, they'll take fish, put it in oil, fry it, right? Mm. You ask the same thing to a bong, he'll give you multiple angles about, you know, what the fish, the temperature, the texture, the salting, the turmeric. There will also the be a reference to Rabindranath and one reference to some European intellectual, Antonini. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so everything in, Beng- in, the, in, the, in the Bengali idiom mm. uh, gets kind of much more intricate and common. And that, that's what makes it interesting, right? You know, there is no two ways. You know, Rajma Chawal is Rajma Chawal, but in the Bengali pantheon of cooking, uh, everybody has a special, like, you know, the Kasba egg roll, you know, then, <laughs> you know, it's very different from, you know, the Deshukriya Park egg roll, you know, which is very different because in one, there are Kasundi, there are others, there are not. Yes. <laughs> okay, this is, so now we are going down the depths of Bengali psychology, which is, we will do regional psychology and this is another set of episodes we will do and we should warn you in advance that there will be some very good-hearted casual stereotyping. But let me just, you know, run with this for a minute more before maybe we touch on a couple of other topics. Yeah. What would you say are like top five foods, Bengali foods? Now, you could either do this as, you know, street food or just food you eat outside or like, you know, cuisine generally, like, you know, gore and Bayre, both. I mean, it's totally up to you. So... So, so, so I'll give you my shout, and this varies yeah. tremendously. Uh, yeah. I think if you look, let's let's work it as a day clock, right? You wake yeah. up in the morning. The traditional breakfast of luchi and uh, sabzi, right? mm. kind of a puri and sabzi made Bengali style, I would say will be one of the andar ka khana, which is good. Mm. Uh, the other ghorer, um, as you said, ghorer, that's a good uh, way to go. Uh, if you're having lunch inside the house, yeah. A light, mildly stewed fish, fish curry, stewed curry is, is something that's part. And also shukto. This is kind of the bitter goat preparation that starts the meal. Nice. Yeah. It's very difficult to, uh, not, not difficult, it's kind of uh, very tricky to get right because there are so many different variations. Mm. And for dinner, obviously, you know, Bengali um, is massively meat eater. So either chicken or mutton, that would be inside. And the mirror image of that outside will be if you're eating breakfast outside, um, I would I would lean on this Bengali fixation of medium mild continental breakfast. This is huge fetish for going to Flurries and having Flurries, Flurries, the beans, toast, etc. So that that kind of whole uh, colonial capital hangover hasn't gone. So that and long live that. Uh, it's still there in bits and bobs. Um, lunch, if you're eating outside, I think there are lots of famous. And I don't. I, I'm not. I mean, O Calcutta is a very famous chain of restaurants which mm, uh, yeah. has has done well, where you can go and 
do a very elaborate uh, Bengali meal. And for dinner, obviously, you do biryani, which is mm. uh, the Calcutta biryani. Uh, that that would be my reference. That's but, but deeply personal. This is my shout. Yeah. I know everybody in if our friend circle would have a completely different view. Yeah. Right? So and I, why not? And why not? That's part of the joy of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fluries, something about I remember the magic of fluries. You know, seeing those pastries from the outside. It used to have a glass shelf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Park Street. Uh, uh, I think the the, the one of the things about uh, Bengali food. And particularly in the confectionery, the theater of confection, right? Is so whenever you go to a mitai shop in um, anywhere in North India, you'll see that the sweets are not that prominently on display. Hmm. I think in uh, Calcutta, my sense is, and you know, there are people who probably have done work on visual cultures to understand that you know the display of confection, confectionery, whether it's cake or sweets. is like a unique art form. You know, Flores oh. does it, as do the mitai shops, right? You know, yeah. Calcutta. Yeah. There's this kind of you know the arrangement of sweets from expensive to inexpensive, mm -hmm. uh, the common sweets which have the lower tier you know mm. which are the popular fast going ones, mm. and then these kind of experimental ones on the top left of the shelf you know like electric chocolate sandesh. Mm. Why the word electric has been added nobody knows because <laughs> there is but it it there you know um, no, you know chocolate. Getting chocolate into Indian mithais, there I'm with uh, you know Kipling. East is east and west is west, and never. Ah, no, no, no. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. But no, I think you know very fond memories, and I think to round up this stress of the discussion, you know, I would encourage our readers, uh, our listeners, to uh, read that uh, article and, and and see if um, they agree um, with uh, you know the the one of the great food cities, you know. But I think also what makes me sad is the fact that Calcutta only makes the list as a food city right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of, you know, are things to see, things to do. Other cities are head and shoulders above or other cities have marketed themselves much better. Right. I I have a you know I have a, I think the years I was in Calcutta, Calcutta was at its absolute nadir, right? Um, you know, eight nine hours of load shedding every day, the eighties. I mean, terrible traffic jams. Um, you know, the work conditions weren't great. And I know that you know part of the reason, even like fifteen years ago, eighteen years ago, people said that there are no power cuts is because industry has moved and so on. Um, I remember reading, you know, Amitav Ghosh actually wrote something very interesting, or he said this perhaps at a talk about. Uh, you look at post-industrial cities or cities that have suffered once industrial, you know, once flourishing industrial cities that have suffered a setback in the West and people have been enormously creative in the allocation of capital, uh, you know, or what's called the creative class, right? I see it in Berkeley, for instance, the area that used to have go-downs, et cetera, completely rejuvenated. You know, it's become, there are like, you know, you will have wine.com, a warehouse for an online place, you'll have restaurants, you'll have, you know, clubs and so on. And a lot of young people who work in, you know, the creative industries, so to speak, have sort of moved there. And he had asked this question about why can't we do this in our Indian cities? It was not just for Calcutta, but Calcutta was one of them. But I perhaps feel that, you know, we will see that it's possible. We might see that rejuvenation. You know, if we can, part of the problem also is that, you know, the local vested political interests and so on, the cost of real estate, quick buck to be made, you know, Babu politician, developer nexus, all of that. But yeah, yeah. hopefully, hopefully we'll see that. Well, I'll just give a quick shout out to two uh, bloggers, I think. And, you know, I, I sort of when I see them online or follow their Twitter accounts, or I used to, the Summer Halankar is one who actually is an amazing cook. And I think he talks a lot about his cooking. And then there's someone called Kalyan Karmakar, 
who also has a blog. And I'm sure there's tons more. So, Funny you should Kalyan and me go back a long time. Uh, Kalyan yeah, is actually yeah. uh, like a, a friend from another uh, life. And, you know, oh, okay. I'm so glad that you called him out because I didn't want to kind of needlessly self uh, kind of, uh, promote. So sweet. Uh, I'm a yeah, fan of his uh, kind of work and writing. And um, he's based in Bombay, but writes about food and things like that. Yeah. It's very, very, it's, it's, and he's got a very cheerful style of writing, which makes it yeah, very yeah. nice. Yeah, I remember that. All right, so let's, you know, we let's run with one more topic. And, you know, this is sort of much more your wheelhouse than mine. Uh, I mean, I love cricket, uh, but but I don't, I think, you know, you're dedicated and consistent and, you know, you really follow it. And you've been into the IPL, uh, sorry, the T20 and the IPL for a long time. And, in fact, it was you who uh, introduced me to to the fact that, look, man, you got to give T20 a chance, right? Yeah. Uh, and I got, I got into it. And I, I want a quick shout out now. You know, last year when I visited London for research and uh, spent some time hanging out with you, uh, one of the things we did was we went to the Lord's Pavilion. And, uh, you know, I, I have Bunty to thank for that. And that was that was very memorable. That was very memorable. That was a bucket list moment. So thank you for that. So I am just a little bewildered about the number of the pool of players that are there for the Indian cricket team, how the selections are made, what's going on, uh, you know, people. The, some teams have been announced. I know that Kohli, Sharma not playing the T20s against New Zealand, but then people are saying that uh, Sanju Samson has performed very well, but not given a chance. And then there's another player, I forget his name, he's been on an amazing streak in the Ranji uh, game, but, uh, you know, at some 170 average, but he's not got a chance. Um, and then I asked on our Twitter account a question about, are we playing fewer tests? And a couple of people corrected me and said, no. The T20 game has not cannibalized tests, but it has cannibalized the ODI game, right? And then Kohli's on some kind of crazy streak, three three centuries in his last four matches, uh, one day centuries, which is which is great. Uh, I, I to me it just seemed though I wish he got a chance to play a few more test matches because, uh, you know, I don't think he's a guy who's a kind of stat padder, uh, and I'm not one of those sort of record obsessed Indians. But but I just wonder if you know the sort of overwhelming number of T20s and ODIs also, or the, the load that's been there on him is one of the reasons that, you know, his test game has taken a bit of a beating because for a long time he was top of the heap and his average has gone below 50. So just I'm just wondering about your thoughts about, you know, this, is there an excess of your glut of cricket and what are its costs? No, I, I mean, look, I, I think anytime we talk about cricket and particularly Indian cricket, we are not only up against 1.3 billion perspectives, but, you know, uh, myriad others. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a trillion dollar industry. So every person who has a view uh, is, 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 is neither right or wrong. It's just a view. Um, and I, and I caveat that my, my views are pretty much much more minuscule in comparison. My broad point is I think more cricket is good because what we are doing is we are getting uh, a diversity of offerings, uh, each geared towards a particular type of cricket audience. Right now, Sharma uncle who watched cricket in the 1960s, like Eknath Solkar and all of that, there's a place for him. And as long as categories don't try to reconvert each other. Sharma uncle will not, you know, you know, uh, Tamil Nadu 2020 local because there are lots of there's a proliferation of T20 leagues across the world, across the region, right? And even in in India, right? Um, My broad take is more cricket is good uh, because each of these formats call for different skill sets. Now, which format is cannibalizing what? 
I tend to agree with the wider point, that, the earlier point that you made. I think the the there's a much there's uh, there's a friction between one more friction between one international T20 than with Test cricket because that Test cricket is in and of itself a very standalone type of um, thing. Thing. Um, now, if you look at England and their cricketing setup, they have reconciled that to be a multi-format player, you not only have to have the skill. But you also have to be as a person willing to oh, commit oh. to three formats. Right? Oh. Um, I think the tragedy in Indian cricket at the moment is that because getting selected is such a kind of a freak show. You know, Surya Kumar Yadav is a case in point who's doing phenomenally well, but he's had to be in the sidelines till his 30s because there are such fantastic cricketers, right? I think the problem in Indian cricket is that. The whole kind of deselection, when, like when people say that he's been rested, right? Mm-hmm. It is seen as a euphemism for his coat, right? Now, which used to happen two years ago when somebody would say he was coat uncoach, Chiteshwar Pujara has been rested for one day international. That mm-hmm. means Pujara can't play one day. He's a liability in that format, right? Mm-hmm. What we, as we go forward, we'll realize that actually those words, rested, rotated, they actually mean what they say. There is no second-layer sports world type meaning, like sneery sports world. You know, remember that uh, drab sports world, like uh, some, sports, like, essentially, sports bitchy, yeah, sports stars, essentially, bitchy, second-rate journalists writing twisted, misquoting people. So, uh, my take is that, you know, when people have been rotated or rested, I think as we move forward with the proliferation, proliferation of formats, that is more or less true. That's exactly what's happened. So my read of it is what the, what it says on the can that Kohli and Sharma have been rested for yeah. this day because there's a there's a lot more cricket going through, right? Yeah. Um, and I would like to think that the board of cricket uh, in in India realizes that there's a cohort of about 45, 50 players who address all these formats and any given combination. Now, the big question is. Who are the people who make it in the list of 40? Because there are different contract types. Contract right, A, right, contract right. B, contract yeah, C. Yeah. Uh, that, Sanju Samson always gets a, uh, gets a hard time. Uh, but, you know, that's a whole a whole episode in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. But I think broadly the point is I welcome more cricket. I think it's good. And I think we should start respecting terms like respected, um, sorry, rested, okay. rotated for yeah. what it is. Yeah, I mean, I hope, you know, I, I don't think Kohli's a guy who will overstay his welcome, but I really, you know, he's so good to walk. I mean, I'm saying nothing profound here, right? There are people who are like far uh, superior in the knowledge of their game, you know, um, I mean, starting with you. Uh, so what I have to say are banalities, but really like he's, you know, it's a pleasure watching Kohli play in, in there's a sort of, you know, the aesthetic pleasure of watching him play the test game. And he's very correct in whatever format he plays in, right? And then Surya Kumar is something else right he's it's just that to me watching those innings and i'm grateful to you for uh for you know getting me on to the the t20 game and now you know winding down in the in in terms of cricket i mean you and i are both we are good-natured uh we are good-naturedly exasperated about Archa <laughs> Bogle. <laughs> i know he has his fan following but i was a little you know i i stayed up I'm too old to like now, you know, get up in the middle of the night and stay up. But I did that for that uh, first India-Pakistan match in the T20 World Cup. And I watched it. That last, you know, innings and a half when Kohli was, you know, guiding us to victory. 
And if the guy just would not stop talking, boss. <laughs> my point is that you have smart things to say, but you know, sometimes like you don't have to get nervous around a silence. So anyway, that's just my like quibble. Not, nothing against him, no malice. I mean, he's a great guy, deserves, you know, everything. And I, I do think he was hard done by. And I, I you know, I, I'm a fan of Kohli, admirers, but I think that years ago, I think Kohli, but also Bachan piled onto it, said, you know, some silliness saying that, Commentators need to be nationalistic. And Hashaboglu, I think, was kind of on the sidelines for a couple of years before that, before he came back. But you you came across, we came across a Hashaboglu parody account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, look, Hashaboglu's main um, stock in trade is to say obvious things, right? <laughs> that, you know, he's made a living out of saying that, you know, it is raining, therefore we need an umbrella. If it stops raining, we shouldn't put the umbrella away. So his whole philosophy of commentary is based around stating the obvious that the if the ball is coming to you, treat the ball on merit, right? Uh, if if you do not treat it on merit, it, you run a risk, right? Yeah, this kind of uh, somebody who's done a, like the real Arsha Bhogle, or, or or on the other hand, or something like that. Yeah, it's wild uh, reading through it, uh, but uh, quite rightly with you. Look, I think English commentary to find a genre of uh, a style, a vibe which is not like the Henry Blofields of the world. Because, you know, when you look at other English commentators from the subcontinent, they're kind of trying to ape a style of, you know, uh, a village cricketing great who's kind of partially alcoholic and prone to uh, kind of casual sexual harassment. But because you remember that whole body of comedy where they would essentially leer at women and say... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was awful. So Blofield, okay, he was obsessed with earrings. Fine, yeah. you're fanning. Yeah. But there was something completely repellent with uh, Vasim Akram and Shastri. I mean, it was basically open lechery. It was called the Vaz and Shaz show. And right. during, you know, during the ad break or during the drinks break, they would actually focus and zoom in on women. And they would like basically rate those women. And here you are, you know, two like lecherous old guys. I mean, it was just yeah. in very, very poor taste. So, so the, the, in defense, Hasha Bhogle uh, is a counterpoint to that school yes. of uh, commentary. So, yeah. Uh, for which strength to him and, and he was a fans of him. Whether I'm a fan of him, I don't want to disclose, but I think, you know, I, I just think that he's made a wonderful career out of stating the obvious and strength to him. It's a, it's an art. And I have to say that, you know, as someone balding, I say this with envy that I think Harsha Bhogli, and again, no judgmental, no judgment here, no body shaming, his money, his life, he's, you know, like he's regrown hair. So, you know, okay. so to me, that's one of the greatest comebacks in the history of Indian cricket. True, true, true. true, true, true. <laughs> anyway, so again, no malice towards Harsha Bhogle. So we'll wrap up there. And listen, uh, guys, hang in there. We'll chat again soon. Uh, I mean, we consider this a chat with you. Please send your, um, you know, your comments in. It's the start of the week. And during the week, uh, in the words of the legendary Harsha Bhogle, like just... Hang in there and play every ball on its merit, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right, Roman. Take care, man. Take care, man. Bye.